Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Shida Soleimani's work explores the intersections of art and activism. She melds sculpture, performance, film and photography to highlight critical perspectives on events across the Middle East unpacking the complex power dynamics between the region and Western nations. Her work often interrogates the dissemination of information in digital contexts. You can find her adapting found images from press and social media and putting those within alternative scenarios. And in doing this, she's rigorously interrogating the role of images in our lives and in our psyches, as well as the way they manifest in propaganda and geopolitics. During our conversation, which is roving and vast, we talk about process, practice, craft, care, critique, and the importance of spontaneity. My control variables always kind of come up in like the sketches, but I don't think that I would enjoy making work or have any fun if there wasn't some sort of spontaneity. I'm Jen Fletcher, and this is The Messy Truth, Conversations on Photography. Shida Soleimani is an Iranian-American artist, educator and wildlife rehabilitator based in Providence, Rhode Island. Her radical work has been exhibited around the globe to much acclaim and her practice has been recognised internationally in publications such as Art Forum, The New York Times, Huffington Post, Interview and Vice magazine. Let's jump into my conversation with Shida. I wanted to start by talking about your upbringing because it feels like it really informed your artistic life. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, totally. I mean, like, it's weird because I think about having been raised in the United States and thinking about, like, the American dream and all of these kind of ideals that, you know, I was raised around because of being, like, in the country, like, near the suburbs, like, in the Midwest. And my parents were so the opposite of that. So my upbringing was really my parents railing against any sort of American normalcy. Sometimes I joke and I say that I was raised as, like, a feral child. (laughs) I had, you know, not many friends because I didn't speak English until I was about, gosh, fully. I mean, I started speaking it when I was in kindergarten at, like, six, seven but I didn't really start speaking English fluently until I was like eight or nine. I grew up with not that many friends. I grew up like hanging out in the creek and with lots of, you know, nature around me, but not many people. So my best friends were really my parents. And both of my parents are political refugees from Iran, and they have a lot of traumatic stories. And culturally, they don't, you know, at their age and at that time, they didn't believe in therapy. I'm sure they believed in it for other people, but they didn't think that they would benefit them for some odd reason. And so I was their therapist. And so my upbringing really was listening to these traumatic stories or absorbing this kind of like secondhand trauma, being a child therapist and kind of being this like feral child that grew up in a community of people that were, you know, white Americans that were very much obsessed with the American dream and the nuclear family 
And my family was very much not that. So seeing the stark differences between how my parents decided to raise me and what they decided to tell me and talk to me about versus how everyone else around me was being raised. Correct me if I'm wrong, but they kind of initiated this like sense of profound political activism in you, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's not that I didn't have a choice. My parents have always given me the choice. You know, I have a sister and she's very different than I am. She has decided to not, you know, she's been exposed to the very same things and (laughs) decided to not go down those routes or being interested in like, you know, political histories or stories or activism. But I feel like being given the information that I was given or being raised by people that were so profoundly, you know, affected by the choices that they made to try to like, just, you know, find democracy or to have some sort of freedom or like civil liberty made me really just aware and cognizant of my positionality, who I am, where I am, and how those things are so often taken for granted if you're not living in a totalitarian state. And so, yeah, I feel like I just didn't, it's not that I didn't have the choice, but I didn't, I politically don't think that I had the choice to shy away from that. And so where did your interest in art and photography start? It's weird because sometimes people ask me like, oh, how'd you get into photography? And I honestly don't know because it was so out of the (laughs) blue. I mean, like my mom always has been interested in art. Like she had like oil paints when I was a kid and she would paint landscapes or like when, you know, I was living my feral childhood and I wasn't allowed to have the Barbie dolls, which is so timely thinking about the movies that's out now. My mom would, like, dig up some clay from our backyard and I would, like, you know, make dolls out of clay or whatever and, like, bake them in the oven. But, you know, the art was definitely a part of my life. We drew a lot. We collected a lot of objects. We collaged a lot. But photography was never really part of that vocabulary. My mom, like, you know, like every other 90s mom, took, like, family photos and documented things. Um... And I never really took photos with, like, a camera until I was, like, 15, 16. There was my mom's camera. It was, like, an old Canon that was an old film camera kind of sitting on one of our shelves that kind of, like, maybe haunted me for a while. I would just look at it, and I knew that she brought it from Iran and escaped with it and, like, loved this camera. But I never used it. And then around the time I was 15, 16, something made me... Something clicked and I was like, oh, I want to try photography. And I asked my parents for a camera and they got me a Canon film camera, although a more new school plastic one, not like my mom's like heavy sludgy 70s one. And I started taking photographs of flowers, (laughs) like really just like simple macro close ups of flowers. And it felt like this weird like escape, like, you know, being able to like being a teenager and being like, oh my gosh, I could see something in a totally different way. Like, wow, the photographic eye, all of that, you know, it felt so new and exciting. And then it kind of became a space for world building for me. I started thinking about, you know, this place that I grew up, like in the middle of nowhere, being around these farms, these like abandoned factories. And I started thinking about building these alternate realities in those spaces by photographing them. So it very quickly, you know, changed and became something totally different for me. Instead of just being like taking photos of flowers, it became like this parallel or alternate universe. But yeah, I have no idea how I got into it. (laughs) It just kind of happened. I feel like it was something about the magic of that camera sitting on a shelf. I feel like that's definitely, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I do get asked this question often. 
you know, it's pretty, like, standard, like, oh, how did you get into, like, being an artist? And, like, you know, I always joke because it's with my students because I'm like, if you ever do an interview, do not tell people that you were born an artist because that's not true. But I start <laughs> thinking about the objects that inform how we, you know, relate to art or relate to different medias or spaces. And I do think that that camera just sitting there, like, subconsciously must have been planting something. I don't know what it was, but something. It's so funny because I've been thinking about this a lot myself because I've worked in various parts of the photo industry for the last 20 years. I really was sitting the other day thinking, how did this start? Like, I remember being into like Mary Ellen Mark when I was like 12 years old, but I was like, there must have been something. And I remember like taking pictures of myself with like shitty plastic cameras, (laughs) but like, I was like, how did it start? And then I realized that I only exist because of a photograph because my dad saw a photograph of my mum at a party and it's this sounds creepy but their version is much more romantic and he was like I have to meet this woman found this woman they were 16 they've been together ever since no way so I was like this is so weird based off of just seeing a photo and not having yeah. a person a polaroid yeah we still have the polaroid in my parents house really oh that's incredible it's so weird. And I was like, fuck, I I still think of myself as an imposter, even though I've been in this industry for so long. And then when I thought about that, I was like, no, it's okay. I think I was always meant to be here. Yeah. I mean, that makes perfect sense. It's just like such a roundabout way of finding it, you know, when you're in this world and we operate the way that we do and like, whether it be like the photo world or the art world or talking about, you know, work in a certain way, it's really strange to think about going back to that moment of being like, what was it actually that like brought me to this place? Mm. It kind of perfectly syncs with my urge to talk to you about Ghostwriter, which is your recent show in London. And that was the first time you've kind of turned your camera inwards in a really sort of intimate way in that you use the oral histories of your parents' lives and their time leaving Iran and all the conditions that kind of led them to the United States. And I was curious, like, why did you want to tell this story? And then also, what was the experience like making this work? Oh, gosh. Well, it is. It's a lot of different things. How do I begin? How did I start making this work? I've been wanting to make this work my whole life. You know, when you're in college and you're, like, in school for art, you kind of, like dabble you dip your toes into like the personal and you think about like narrative storytelling and I did that when I was in college and I like really went pretty hard and then I feel like I didn't have a way to connect with viewers because I have all these traumatizing intense stories that I've heard my whole life and I was starting to tell them and they didn't really have anywhere to land I hadn't you know mastered storytelling by any means way shape or form and I was creating these kind of raw matter effect images and as much as I like loved you know finally like reaching into this like history that I'd grown up with you know my whole childhood it didn't feel like the right time to explore it and so I kind of put it to bed for a while that was I stopped making work about my parents gosh in like 2000 maybe 11, 2012. And I then started making different work. I went to grad school. I started thinking about global geopolitics, specifically in the Swana region. And as like, I've been making work that has to do with like politics, obviously I'm informed by my parents, their stories. As I have been doing bird rehab, I'm informed by my mom and like my upbringing. But I've always wanted to keep those things separate because I do find that the art world 
has the tendency to like exoticize and essentialize these stories. And, you know, the last thing I want is for these parents, like these stories of my parents or for my parents to really just be like essentialized into these like trauma objects that people can consume. And so it really took the pandemic happening. I remember, you know, during the beginning of the pandemic, hearing about how all these people were dying. And my dad's a doctor. He works in a public hospital. He provides health care to individuals that don't have access to proper, you know, insurance or really just medical access in general. And so I was convinced that my dad was going to get COVID and die and give it to my mom and that she would die, you know, always thinking the worst. Usually that's me. And, um, I just really started being like, oh my gosh, like if they die, like I've never told their stories, like their stories need to be told. And I kind of went down this route of thinking about, you know, when I was a kid in the early like 2000s, there were like these genres of these, um, not like memoir of a geisha type books, but similarly like ghost written stories of individuals who have like, you know, escaped or been persecuted or even like Holocaust survivors that have had their stories ghostwritten. And so they were kind of having like a reemergence, like a moment in the early 2000s at bookstores of like ghostwritten stories. And I remember my dad being like, oh, like Shiva Baba, this is like a interesting idea. Maybe we should hire someone to ghostwrite our story. And, you know, as like a preteen, I was like, dad, that's cheesy. Like that'll never <laughs> happen, you know? And I, that for some reason during the pandemic that really came back to me and I was like, wait, like my dad's literally always like always like even after the 2000s joked about how he wants to hire a ghostwriter to write the book because he doesn't know how to write and doesn't have time for it and then it really just hit me and I was like wait like I need to ghostwrite this like in writing doesn't have to be like literally writing it could be photographing and so I called them up because it was probably like you know end of 2020, like October, November, 2020, I hadn't seen them for a long time. I was really worried that they were going to die or something before I could ever see them again. Cause thinking the worst. And I asked them, (laughs) I was like, you know, do you, do you think I could do this? And do you feel comfortable doing this? And they surprisingly like on the spot said, absolutely. Yes. And so we, you know, talked about it for a long time and we came up with a list of conditions Um, we discussed that the project needs to be collaborative. There's no unilateral decision-making. The stories, I've been recording all of our conversations so I can, like, go back and take notes and, like, use the details of, like, the places that they're describing or narrating to create the scenes and the photos. And their one other condition is that their faces would not be shown. And so, yeah, with all of that in mind, I decided to do it. And here we are. That's the long version of the story. (laughs) What was the collaboration like? Because thinking about what you were saying before in terms of you kind of almost being this emotional sort of vessel for your parents' experiences when you were a child, like, was it cathartic? Was it re-traumatizing? All of the above. All of the above. I mean, like, there's so much. It's funny, like, when you're a kid and you're being told about, like, I remember, you know, anecdotally, here's a good example When my mom would put me to bed at night, like usually the time where you tell kids like bedtime stories or maybe you want to scare them with like the boogeyman or like whatever nightmare, horror, whatever, don't wake up or else so-and-so is going to get you. My mom (laughs) would tell me stories about the leper colony and the leper asylum that she worked at. And she obviously really needed to talk about it. And so she didn't know how to talk about it. And so she turned it into a bedtime story. 
And so I was afraid. And I'd ask her, you know, what's leprosy? And she'd say, oh, it's when your skin necrosis and falls off. And I would say, well, what's necrosis? And she said, your skin dies and it turns black, you know, sometimes and it falls off. And so my first childhood fear was that leprosy was hiding under my bed. And that it was this man um, whose body was falling apart and that he would sneeze and his nose would fall into his hands. And that's always been like a really intense, you know, kind of like rememory or image for me. But it was never um, in this way where I feel traumatized by thinking about that. I just think about it in a very matter of fact way. And I'm like, yes, in fact, that was my bedtime story. And so I hadn't really access like while I know all of these things are traumatic and intense I've always accessed them through my parents and not really thought about the way that I absorbed them really until recently and so making these images have made me evaluate how I've absorbed these stories how they've landed on me and obviously how they have really affected my parents their whole lives because they're still telling these same exact stories the same exact ways It was such a powerful exhibition. It felt like it brought together so many of the different sort of, I guess, core threads of your practice, whether that was like through the way you make, through your visual language, through your approach to political storytelling. Like it was just so compelling. Like I I didn't want to leave because every time I kept sort of pacing around the gallery, every time I went back to the beginning, it automatically tipped me back over again to to going around again there wasn't like a even though there was a fixed start and end there also wasn't like it it felt more like a continuum and every time I went round, I sort of discovered more symbols that I didn't notice the first time it was just so rich yeah it just weaves together like this sort of social political context with this sort of visceral sort of personal story and it's all set against the walls of the gallery with this huge map that your father drew right sort of charting his escape I'm actually looking at it right now um my I was making like all these mock-ups for the gallery of how the map was gonna go around the space and coincidentally one of them has fallen on the floor and I am gazing at it as we speak it's (laughs) of his stick figure horse that's about to climb the mountains which just look like a bunch of squiggly lines (laughs) but He was embarrassed to make that drawing because my mom has always been the, you know, quote unquote artist and has had a really, you know, I think interesting way of showing space and telling her stories via images. And my father's a scientist and a doctor. And so when he made this map of his escape route, he was just like, oh, my goodness, I don't even know how to draw a horse. What is this even? And so he was really laughing at himself the whole time that he was making this map, but he was so invested in it and he wanted to make sure that I understood it. So there's a lot of like gestures on the walls of like secondary lines or like arrows. And that was like him gesturing as he was drawing the map to get me to understand. Like I went from here to here. Did you catch that? Yeah, this is where I got off at the tractor. And then I had to hide in the safe house. And then we went over the mountains, but then there's a snowstorm and we had to hide for another three weeks and I almost got frostbite. And so, you know, these are stories that I've heard my whole life, like the, the going uphill both ways, but truly, literally going uphill both ways in a snowstorm in the middle of the mountains, but actually having them illustrated and having him really kind of put images to that story was so important for me. And I definitely like wanted that to be kind of a space in which the photos, you know, sat around or became kind of like 
map keys or points during the journey. Yeah, it felt like your obviously your work is so rich, which we'll talk about in a minute, but it it was interesting to see how it sort of spilled beyond the frame and really transformed the space because that gallery is you know, it's a traditional white box, yeah. like it, uh, but it really didn't feel like that in that show. I don't know. It sort of, when I first went in, I had the sensation of like, I guess it's a bit like Inception when like the map is unfolding, like yes. the world was unfolding and it really felt like that. I had quite a physical reaction to being in the space before I even looked at the work. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I loved the that context of the map I thought it was fantastic oh I'm so glad to hear that that's what I wanted I mean like I want to like bring people into the space and while the space is never going to be the same that it was you know for my parents or for me like hearing it I want to feel like it is immersive because these stories are so you know layered that to just show them as photographs like on a white wall feels like it's not doing them any justice I also want them to operate outside of that you know whatever traditional language of photography but also as of exhibitions in the art world and I want to make it more immersive as an experience it's something I plan on doing with like every iteration of the exhibition no matter where I show it I want there to be some sort of immersive experience that comes with the story unfolding yeah because you're showing the same work in New York in September right I am it's a totally different iteration so only like two of the images that were in the Adele Zanti show will actually be in the New York show. And so I'm also thinking about, you know, Ghostwriter kind of happening in chapters, happening in sections. And I'm thinking a lot about like magical realist texts. One of my favorite, I mean, it might sound cheesy, but one of my favorite books is uh, hundred years of solitude by Garcia Marquez. Um, it was a book that my father gave to me when I was a senior in high school and he was like you know I read this it reminds me a lot of our life you should read this and you know I'm also interested in like political texts and I think magical realism is a form of writing that um is really political in the sense that it upends time um in times of societal upheaval I think there's a way that individuals writers artists world build you know, to find a form of escape. I think Afrofuturism obviously is one form of like creating alternative realities and planets because this reality and our world is not hospitable to, you know, black people in many ways. And so magical realist texts I find to be the same way, specifically Spanish magical realism, thinking about, you know, world building and shifting time as a political, you know, choice. And I really wanted to bring that into Ghostwriter, thinking about how these chapters aren't actually linear. You know, while these things do occur on a timeline and they might have escaped in, you know, 1984 or 1986, it doesn't have to be a linear way of saying this happened first and then this happened after. I kind of want all of these events to operate the way that they do in their memories. Um, They're all kind of conjoined and sticky and stuck together in a way that they can't be torn apart. Yeah, you touched on two things then that I really wanted to talk to you about. And that's this the sort of disruption of like space and time as we know it, but actually how that is a strategy to subvert photography, which is feels like something you're doing again and again in all of your different sort of all of the different ways that you approach the work, which we'll kind of unpack. But what is it that excites you so much about subverting photography? I mean, I think it's the medium itself, right? I mean, the history of photography is so problematic in so many ways, but it's also been utilized as both a tool and a weapon to subvert the other and to record the other, whether it be, I mean, I think a lot about, um, 
the Alan Sekula reading The Body in the Archive, and I think a lot about like phrenology and physiognomy and how images of the other have been used to categorize people and how we expect them to behave or think they behave based off of how they look or how surveillance imagery, um, like Hito Sheryl's proxy politics, um, thinking about like surveillance imagery and how that's also such a big part of our world now and normalized and how the image is supposed to be this document of the truth, but how often is it actually? And what is the truth? And how do we find that? And so I don't want to have my photographic work function in those ways. I don't want it to be a truth telling, you know, kind of device or something that helps me essentialize or to pick someone based off of, you know, or to stereotype someone based off of how I think they look or act or behave. And that was actually a huge choice for me to even like photograph my parents in the first place, because you know, I think portraiture in any way, shape or form, you're never going to be able to get away from that type of essentialization or stereotyping, no matter how hard you try. And so by photographing them, I am opening myself up to that a little bit more, which is really scary for me. But yeah, I think like, as far as my practice goes, I'm always interested in pushing back on that history. And I want you know, obviously my practice to be aware of that history, but to try to exist outside of that bounds. I don't know if it does or doesn't, but I try for it, (laughs) at least. Well, it's so interesting because you're coming at it with so many different strategies that it feels like, how can it not? Because there's so many different ways that you've thought that subversion through, which is really interesting. I think, you know, one of the things that I find so magnetic about your work is the way that you are sculpting an image and this like entire construction of an image being based around these pretty large from a few of the behind the scenes images I've seen like theatrical sets where you're you know layering objects and images and forms and shapes and symbols and I was curious like how did you find that sweet spot in terms of your way of working because it's so fascinating looking at all the different bodies of work where you apply this approach it's all signature you but you cover so much diversity and so much complexity in a way that I haven't seen that many people do thank you I mean I think actually a lot about the very first you know you asked about how I got into photography and well it might have been my mother's camera looming over me I think a lot about the very first photograph I made very first still life that I made And it was a clock. My parents had this like very classic Roman numerally kind of looking clocks in their bedroom. And my mom always collected these dead bugs. She's really always been into like insects and birds and, you know, natural history. And so she found this insane dead moth and she preserved it between layers of tissue. And she would sometimes, you know, she still does this to this day. She'll take out these boxes and she'll just enjoy looking at them and be like, Shana, look, isn't it so beautiful? Like, look at this. Can you believe it's real? And so she had this moth that she would look at often sitting on this box, um, inside of this box on one of our shelves, you know, when I was growing up. And I remember I was reading, gosh, it was like some Thoreau quote that I was reading in like high school about like time. And I don't even remember the quote at this point. It was like a very matter of fact, kind of like mortality, poetic point. And I decided to re kind of try to create that or animate that by making a still life of this clock with this dead moth on top of it, on top of like a sidewalk. And it was like shot in black and white film from some like kind of edgy, whatever angle from below. 
and everything was flattened. And I was like, wow, that's so crazy because this doesn't look like a photograph. You know, when you shoot at a high aperture, everything is flattened and it's equalized. And I remember being like, wait, that's not a photograph, but it is a photograph. And that kind of like blew my mind when I made that very first, you know, whatever still life image. And I think about that every time I make a piece, thinking about like subverting expectations, what it means to have a consensual photographic practice. I think that's really important for me thinking about, I say this when I teach a lot, but thinking about like the lens dick as this thing that literally penetrates the world non-consensually as wielded by you know, men in this medium. And I really want to create a practice that's non-penetrative. That's something that's like building more of a set or a scene, obviously thinking about theater, um, political puppetry. I actually just went to bread and puppet theater this past weekend in Vermont. And so I'm really interested in like paper mache and like DIY kind of like craft objects and set building and design. And so I, yeah, I want all of those things to kind of like layer and come into my practice. Obviously, Dada collage, Hannah Hawk, thinking about like mechanizing bodies and cutting them and pasting them back together. Yeah, I want all of that (laughs) to be in there. And it feels like as well that sort of that complexity of approach is also matched with your sort of symbiology. Like you, there is just endless symbols. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I've heard as well you talking in an interview before about how you also hide sort of Easter eggs in there for yourself, which is purely, you know, may never land with the with the viewer, but it's just for you. Yes. And I love that. And I, yeah, could you talk a little bit about your approach to codifying the images? Because I guess I'm curious, like how much of it is pre-planned, how much of it is spontaneous, like... Yeah, curious how you sort of build these worlds. I say it's half and half. I always start with an idea or a sketch. So right now, for example, I'm going to be building a backdrop for the mountains that my dad escaped in. And I have a hundred, you know, aluminum flowers that I've cast that are going to go in the foreground, each of which represent a woman that has died in the woman life freedom movement. And they're going to be in the foreground of the photograph. And so I know that that's what I want the photograph to be of, right? It's like, I know I want the backdrop of the mountains. I know that I want to have the flowers in there. And then I'm going to paper mache large mountains that are theatrical. So those are like my, it's kind of like um, science, like variables and control variables. And so my control variables always kind of come up in like the sketches. But I don't think that I would enjoy making work or have any fun if there wasn't some sort of spontaneity. So much happens in the studio where you're actually like, let's say you have all your variables and you place them in a set, then you have to start moving them around. How do they work together? Do they interact? Do they touch? Do they not touch? Are they in intimate relationships? Do they hate each other? Are they repelled by one another? And so I started thinking about all of these objects really actually being like, you know, protagonists and these stories that I'm building, or maybe they're antagonists too. And how do they work together or not? And so that's where the spontaneity and the Easter eggs kind of come in. I'll, you know, place something somewhere and I'll think it's like funnier tongue in cheek and that might be like something that only I get, but I love that like little bit of it. And that's what keeps me making the work or that keeps it exciting. And then the other, you know, like codified symbols that I always have running through my work might be, you know, the sugar cubes or the icing, for example, and like having those be like the connective tissues of the threads that run throughout the series. I really like to work with hands and pointing and gestures a lot. That also goes between a lot of my different bodies of work, not just ghostwriter, but 
absolute powers, for example, levers of power, for example. And so those types of connective tissues really, like, I think, make all of the different pieces and practices coexist. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about this sort of motif of bodies and how, you know, it feels like gesture, like physical bodies or elements of them are kind of vessels to hold stories or ideas within your projects, like particularly in Levers of Power and how you kind of embedded those different hand gestures of world leaders to sort of interrogate all of these different ideas, but I guess particularly like the sort of lexicon of Western media. And I wondered... If you, could you tell us a little bit about that body of work and how it came into existence? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it all started when Qasem Soleimani was assassinated by Trump. So that was, gosh, in 2020, believe it or not. Um, it feels like so long ago now when I think about it. But I remember sitting at a bar in Marfa, Texas, and I saw, we were watching, like, you know, I was drinking a Negroni, my favorite drink. And I saw my last name flash across the screen of the TV in like a sports bar that was playing the news for some reason. And as you know, every time that something happens in which the you know Middle East or Iran is involved, I always because of you know growing up post nine eleven in the Midwest, I always fear feel a little bit of fear. And so as soon as I see my last name, I'm like, oh shit, this is not going to be good. And so I continue to watch on and, you know, it says, yes, Qasem Soleimani, assassinated by Donald Trump, um, blah, blah, blah. And so in that just day afterwards, the amount of texts I got from people that were like, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry, assuming that I was related or people being like, oh, my God, like Trump is so awful. We're so sorry for what he did, which, of course, Donald Trump is awful. But people not realizing that, you know, because Qasem Soleimani is actually was also awful. And so thinking about like, you know, is there a justified way of killing someone or is it justified to kill someone? Absolutely not. But people are always trying to find who's good and who's bad without thinking that maybe both could be bad. And so that was like, for me, really interesting thinking about um, Qasem Soleimani and Trump. Everyone's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Trump is so awful. Iranians are like, oh, my God, we hate Donald Trump, but also we hate Qasem Soleimani. And so it's, you know, I really wanted to play around with that idea of like who's there to blame and thinking about blame shifting and finger pointing and like these ideas and the binary of good and bad, like the peace dove and the war hawk, for example, And how both parties actually, you know, created this awful outcome. And so I started thinking about isolating gestures there, thinking about how we assume a politician is good or bad based off of what news we're watching, what we're looking at, or our understanding of the sociopolitical landscape and world. And I wanted to kind of turn that on its head a little. And instead of having faces that would be recognized or names that would be recognized I would isolate the gestures of these politicians and these sorts of like dioramas or scenes that might lead someone to, you know, have some sort of feeling about the event that's happening without knowing who it is and coming to some sort of conclusion on their own. This project and kind of all of your work kind of also speaks to the way that images are disseminated and and sort of our visual literacy, because within these images and some of the other projects we'll talk about and have talked about, you use appropriated imagery as well as obviously making the work. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your research 
process in how you find those images? Because from what I understand, it comes in many different forms. It does, yeah. So, I mean, it really does depend on the project. Like for To Oblivion, for example, I worked with a friend that worked for the government to help me access the dark web to talk to human rights lawyers to, you know, discuss with families of women that had been executed to get images of them from their families, um, sometimes from their trials as well. So that's one way, although I have not really tapped into that method of collecting images since to oblivion and others you know kind of like forms like in medium of exchange i'm mining specifically the opec website and i'm pulling images off of their website that are taken by opec photographers which are really quite funny they're kind of almost new topographic z versions and images of oil fields which i find to be fascinating and then you know fast forward to something like levers of power when it's just hands of these politicians i'm literally just google image searching you know, these politicians and like photoshopping out the rest, deleting their bodies and just printing their hands out on my printer and cutting them out and making them into these like weird foam, you know, monuments that go into my studio. For Ghostwriter, it's the very first time that I'm actually using a personal archive of images, or personal at least to my parents, and the images that they escaped the country with, as well as the images that they left behind. And my family in Iran has been sending me photos of via WhatsApp, which has been funny. So I'm getting really like grainy, degraded phone photos of old film photos. Interesting. Yeah, it really depends. Research is a huge part of the practice. I mean, like research could be very like clinical in many ways where I'm looking up specific dates and coming up with timelines and those timelines inform the types of props that I'm putting in the photos or sometimes the research could just be collecting an archive and could be an intuitive response to it. And that's those are where my like Easter egg kind of moments come in. <laughs> I'm just aware as you're talking, I never planned to ask you this, but do you work quite quickly? Because thinking about the timeline of whether it's a world event or kind of how you were saying, you know, COVID sort of prompted you making work about your parents, like it feels like you've made so much work about some of these issues. So it really depends on what is happening. So like, for example, when um, Masa Amini was murdered last year, I immediately, within like the two-week period of her death, made a piece about it. And so sometimes an event will kind of poke or prod me into action or into working a certain way. When I was doing reparations packages, for example, I was just doing research on reparations between you know, Western countries and Swana countries that had not been given really what they had deserved for these, you know, acts of horror that had happened to them. And so obviously when I'm looking at like the Indo- like Indonesia and the Netherlands, I'm looking at an event that happened like over 50, 60 years ago. And so there isn't that sort of urgency with building a large set for a tableau like that versus, you know, the drought in Iran, which is happening right now, which I'm making a piece about. And so it really depends. I have multiple things going on at the studio at the same time. The images in Ghostwriter, because I plan on working on this project for such a long time, possibly the rest of my life, are a little bit more long form. But when there is some sort of event that I feel like is important for me to respond to, I will work quickly. But yeah, I just have a lot going on at once, usually. 
We were kind of talking about this before we started recording, but it's interesting because obviously you teach, you're making your, you have your own practice, you're exhibiting quite prolifically. And then also it feels like an important aspect of your life's work is caring for injured birds and wildlife. Yeah, it's like kind of like my life's work in a way. I mean, I love making the work, like the artwork and like, you know, photographing that brings me so much joy Um, I love teaching and, you know, academia doesn't exactly bring me joy, but my students bring me joy. (laughs) And, but the bird rehab brings something totally different to me. You know, like I think about having a, you know, quote unquote activist practice or generating discourse about political topics and trying to bring awareness to them. And I really do believe that it's so important. It's the work of artists to address issues of our time. But sometimes I think about how futile it is too. you know, because I'm quite a cynic. And so there's something with the animal rehab and the birds that makes me feel like at least there's something that I could see happening. You know, like when I get a bird that is abandoned or injured, let's say actually like a few weeks ago, I got a little robin in with a broken tibia and I was able to set that tibia in a splint for like a few weeks and took it off and the wing is healed. And in two weeks from now, that bird's going to be released. And seeing that bird, you know, be able to fly away and kind of rejoin the world and be its own independent creature, not under my care, is like so entirely rewarding when we see the amounts of like awful, crazy things that are happening to animals or birds specifically for me in the world around us. And so, yeah, that it brings me joy in that type of way. But it's important for me to like balance that with all the other work that I have going on too. I don't like to not be busy in that way. Yeah, it's interesting because that obviously is like a care practice. And I was thinking about, I think I read a quote that you uh, from an interview you did with the British Journal of Photography. And it was you were talking about how you see the work as a feminist practice, obviously, but also how that is sort of connected to sort of these sort of so-called feminist practices of caretaking, of cutting, of making, of craft, essentially. Absolutely. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that because I think there's, there is a like small group of artists who I adore who are subverting this sort of sense of craft through a feminist practice in really radical ways. And I'm just curious about your own sort of personal intentions with that. I mean, and the word craft is such an interesting one because I feel like you hear it and people like are like, oh, craft, like, ugh. And I, I hate that, you know, about, you know, people that have craft-based practices, especially here in the States. People are like, oh, you must mean like crocheting or sewing mm-hmm, or like, mm-hmm. and thinking about how people frown upon it because things like craft, like crocheting or sewing or all of those things are so tied in with women's work. And I think, all you know, obviously, like, there's such importance to women's work and, like, the frowning down upon it is, like, such an anti-feminist reaction. And so subverting that is really important for me. Thinking about how wrapping a bird's wing is actually a form of craft. It's, you know, using, like, the same sorts of materials and it's still doing the same form of care work. It's healing, it's taking care of and nourishing. And I think of that as being craft and women's work as well. I think it's also for me an alternative form of mothering. And that is really important to me as well. Yeah, it's interesting how divisive that word is, right? It's really, 
yeah, I've I've had conversations with Carmen Winant about this because oh, I love her. you know, yeah, me too. So much of her practice is sort of rooted in those feminist craft based, female craft based sort of elements but again uh, like you she's kind of taking them and turning them into these grand political gestures which feels utterly radical and refreshing and exciting and sort of dissolves it away from that stigma but I guess it's you know Carmen always talks about how it's actually the art world that she feels like kind of puts that stigma on it it is it absolutely is yeah. It's interesting. I mean, like in the teaching realm, right? Because if we talk about craft, a lot of our students that are so obsessed with being part of the art world are like, no, you can't do craft. No one takes craft seriously. Or they'll be like, oh, well, craft is really trendy right now. And I hate that it is such a divisive word because I think that it's actually such craft within itself is such a powerful like movement, a powerful like practice of making, a powerful gesture. I think it's so, I think craft is so much about repair. And, like, mm-hmm. reparative work and restoration is so, I mean, based in feminist practice and history that I hate when people have this, like, adverse reaction to hearing the word craft. It makes me, like, really angry. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. I was kind of surprised when I had the conversation with Carmen just because I guess she's so committed to that. I would have thought that... I. Th- and I had this conversation with her, like those things wouldn't still feel like a burden, but it's a testament to how much that word is stigmatized, that it still feels like a burden. Oh, absolutely. I mean, at least in academia, it very much is. And then you have historians that are like thinking about craft, but they're thinking about it in this very like atypical type of way where, oh, only these materials can be used or only these practices and this is strictly what craft is and this is what craft isn't. And I think those boundaries or those definitions are also, you know, the academia or the art world places on movements or mediums are so detrimental to how they function and how people understand them. And so, yeah, I think like pushing on those boundaries and saying, actually, like everything is craft. Any act of making could be craft. What is it specifically about having to use specific materials or, forms of work that makes it that way I don't know I think caretaking for me is craft and that's a huge part of the practice I think it'd be really remiss not to talk about your aesthetic strategies as well because the work is visually spectacular as an entry point both in its beauty and its sort of elements of the grotesque and quiet moments of horror sometimes and I was curious to sort of talk to you because I know you are also interested in subverting the conventions of advertising and thinking about how image culture informs behavior and the ideologies built into images. Could you tell us a little bit about your thinking around your visual language? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I, again, grew up in this household that was not shying away from, you know, talking about horror and trauma I watched the news that we didn't have like cable or, you know, TV, but we were exposed to like the news at least. And so I grew up with like watching the news all the time. And I remember, you know, when I started going to school and speaking English, I realized that a lot of the other kids around me didn't even know about what was going on, you know, talking about like things in world history class. They had never even heard of some of the countries that were being covered. And for me, these were topics at the dinner table every night, hearing about, you know, war-torn spaces, interventions, coup d'etats, like looking at images of individuals that have been massacred, all of those were normalized to me. Um, Although, you know, all that 
could be a problem in itself, it did make me think a lot about how people consume images and why, you know, people don't want to consume traumatic images. And so I started thinking a lot about trickery. And is it possible to trick people into consuming traumatic images? And how could you do it? And trickery makes me think of advertising, right? Like thinking about like, oh, like, how can you sell someone something? How can you make them want something? And so, you know, I I would like to hope that society could be open to learning new information or be enlightened. But most of the time, people are comfortable knowing what they know and they don't want to learn new things. And I think that stands for people in the art world as well. And, you know, just because you have access to, like, the art world because you've been a product of university or some sort of intelligentsia doesn't mean that you are enlightened or enriched as a person. And I wanted to kind of, like, push back even on people that are from educated, you know, supposedly educated communities that might not even know about a lot of these, like, day-to-day issues happening in our world. And so how can I do that? And I think selling images using this kind of Trojan horse strategy to think about seduction, like the same types of lighting that advertising photos will use to sell a purse or a handbag or whatever, the same type of colors that Prada might use in their 2023 ad campaign, all of those things coming into how I can create a photograph and sell literally a political message, similar to propaganda posters as well. Yeah, that's what I find so interesting. There's definitely this element of like, propaganda to the work and it feels like so much of its essence is really forcing the viewer to interrogate their visual literacy Absolutely. in a really dynamic way that's sort of never ending because of all the codes <laughs> it's just like that's why I think there's this sort of sense of continuum when you experience the work in a space because you can just yeah you just keep finding it's it's like a treasure hunt Kind of, it feels like. Oh, I love that. I love to hear you say that because that's like all I ever want for it to be. So it makes <laughs> me really happy. One thing I wanted to ask you before we jump into some quick fire questions is about humor. Because yeah. while the work is, you know, addressing so many vital, urgent, terrifying issues from human rights violations to governments failing their people to, you know, different geopolitics. I was curious about the role of humour in the work because you use it so pointedly. And I guess I'm curious, is it a coping mechanism for you? Is it, a, is it another offering another entry point? Is it a way of challenging some of the really sort of terrifying, honestly, subjects that you, you sort of grapple with? How did humour sort of become part of the practice? Oh gosh, well, all of the above to start with, but it really became a part of the practice because my dad... Um, it is 100% a coping mechanism. It's my way of, you know, softening the blow for myself. But how I've watched my father, like, turn these adverse situations into things that he can laugh at and, like, make me laugh alongside him. So, for example, you know, after 9-11 and the 2003-04 invasion of Iraq, George W. Bush obviously was very well loved by a lot of the people that I grew up around, but obviously not by my household. My father is also very into Halloween and that type of pageantry and camp, anything that's like really anti-religion, like my dad is there for it. So instead of, you know, 
having normal Halloween decorations that year of the invasion, my dad had a replica of George Bush made, kind of like a scarecrow with a George Bush mask put on it, being lowered into a coffin with like a little like gravestone. And so that was like, for me, you know, I've watched him do that kind of stuff my whole life. And it really does make me think about theater and set design and building, but it was so funny to me um, that he was able to, you know, find something that's so awful and horrible and make this kind of like little point of comic relief for himself and to also show his politics to our neighborhood, which was obviously not in agreement that year. A lot of children were not allowed to come to our house for holiday. That is amazing. Yeah, that's pretty great. He's done a few things like that, you know, since I've been a kid. And so I think those types of reminders are really important for me in my work. Like I am at the end of the day, so much, both my mother's and father's child. Like I, operate the same way they do when it comes to how I think about humor, how I think about working through political situations, conflict resolution, caring, all of these things. And so, yeah, I think bringing humor into my work um, was really just naturally another step and a way of coping with all of the traumatic things that I deal with. And, you know, coincidentally, it does allow people an entry point because it's easier for them to look at. Mm hmm. What was it like, actually, not to go full circle, but making Ghostwriter with them? Because thinking about their creative sensibilities, thinking about what you've told me about who they were, this is like a really powerful brain trust of people yeah. who coming together, you know, with the humour and the, you know, the artistry and the care practices. Like, what was it like to collaborate together? Oh, it's fucking crazy. It is fucking crazy. <laughs> I mean, like, my parents are total nuts and I love that about them. Um, but it's insane because they're so, I mean, their opinions are like so much a part of it. So like, we'll be in the set, we'll be working on something like the last time I have all these videos actually of me working on the image of my father in the graveyard and my mom being like, Shada, pose him this way. His hands should be up like this. Like he's scared. She'll get in there. She'll like start moving my dad around. He'll start laughing. And then he'll be like, wait, no, when I was in this moment, I was feeling this way. And I think if I was feeling this way, my hands should be here. And so like, there's really this, like, you know, I come to them and I'm like, this is what I think the image should be. And they'll be like, no, 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 that's all wrong. And so we work together to like build up, you know, the way these images work, but it's funny and collaborative and we're all laughing and we're uncomfortable and yeah, it's great. <laughs> all the good stuff. All the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't start doing it sooner. Honestly, it's like been like the second, you know, the, the bird rehab is like a true joy of my life, but making ghostwriter has been like really like such an intense, like joy and privilege for me to be able to tell their stories. Yeah, I can't wait to see how the project develops. It, it really is remarkable. Thank you. Are you ready for some quick questions? Yeah, let's do it. Let's go. Okay. How do you deal with self-doubt? Self-doubt. Oh, God, how do I deal with self-doubt? I try to address it pretty head-on when I doubt something. I'm, I'm like a really over, like, maybe I'm an over-communicator. And so I verbalize the things that I might be doubting. Generally, to either my best friend, my best friend Paul, we kind of, we're very similar to one another and we bounce these ideas off of one another. And if we have self-doubt, we just have therapy sessions with one another <laughs> generally. Love it. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's just, 
announcing the things that I doubt and trying to understand why I doubt them and does that solve the problem? Usually no, but having an understanding of why I might feel the way I do is how I deal with it. (laughs) How did success change your work? It's hard to say that I'm not excited about it. You know, I don't want to be like, oh, I'm like more excited to make my work. Um, It has a lot of different elements, right? It's like, The success of my work makes me feel excited that my work is like being understood and received the way, like even the way that you're like, you know, able to understand some of the things that I'm trying to get at. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so exciting to hear that someone understands that I'm like making these moves or it's like studying my work. Like that's really exciting and it feels really nice. So of course it makes me excited to go into the studio and to create because I also think about sharing it and like putting that out into the world. And so it's affected my work in that way. I will say for a while and like the early bits of my career, success made me feel like I had to keep repeating the same moves over and over again. And there was a period in which I was not having fun making artwork. And that was the worst thing ever because I really enjoy like being in the studio and making work and making these tongue in cheek pieces. And then I started feeling for a while Gosh, this is probably like 2017, 18, like 2018, like at the tail end of Medium of Exchange before my next project, 2018, 19, I started feeling like some of my work was getting formulaic and I was getting lazy. And I think, you know, the success of knowing what worked, like which images people responded to made me replicate similar types of images over and over And then I found that I didn't have joy in making. But then at least I was able to realize it. Um, I think people spend their whole careers making images that look the same over and over and over again, and they could be successful with them because they'll sell. But that doesn't mean that they're happy with what they're making. And so, yeah, I got a film camera and I started thinking about shooting film again and how that brought me joy. And that really brought me... And, like, honestly, the the whole pandemic, it, like, really brought me back into a place of making work that I was really excited about. What does your practice of art making enable you to do? Oh, gosh, travel? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's, like, a really quick answer. I get to see so much, and I get to meet so many amazing, interesting people because, for some reason, people seem to be interested in the stories that I'm telling, and I'm really fortunate for that. I'm really lucky to be able to do that. But I think the you know, my work enables me to meet so many different people from so many different backgrounds. Unfortunately, in many ways, I brush shoulders with so many of the elite and I see the ways they live and I see the ways they live and how that affects the, you know, types of communities that I'm actually talking about in the work that I'm making. And so that feels strange oftentimes, but it does allow me access into being able to see parts of the world or seeing things that i probably would not be able to do without being an artist. Is there anything that you're currently unlearning? (sighs) Probably. I mean, yes, so much, actually. I am unlearning. Actually, this is a good one. I was in therapy last week, and I was talking about how I am overwhelmed because I don't... Everyone comes to me, whether it be my friends, they're going through something like breakup or whether it be people and my colleagues at work or whether it be, you know, birds that need me or family members, everyone comes to me for repair and care. 
and I am on learn and I want to be there for people. I mean, everyone jokes that I treat people the same way that I treat my birds and I feed them and I heal them and my house is like this compound. And while I love that and there's always something happening at my house and there's literally always someone here, I haven't had time to think about who cares for the caretaker, who cares for me. And no one really. I mean, like, you know, yes, people care for me, but not in the same way that I care for all of them. And so I am unlearning what it means to be so available right now and to actually learn how to set time apart for myself. So actually, for the first time ever, my therapist gave me the homework of starting with one day a week where I don't say yes to anything and I plan nothing. And that's on Wednesday. (laughs) So I have for myself, because I actually, this will bring me joy, have planned a studio day on Wednesday. So I'm doing nothing except being in the studio. I'm very excited about it. I love that so much. Do you think photographs can still change the world or shift consciousness? That's such a good question. (laughs) I think about this all the time, actually. I teach a class called Ethics of Photography, and obviously we look at photojournalism and how it's functioned differently, you know, whether it be like the images of the My Lai Massacre or Napalm Girl or the child with the vulture and how that was, those images were taken at such a specific time and how social media wasn't, you know, really exchanging images at such a fast rate in the way that it is now. I think we're desensitized to images now. And while images do have an ability to show people trauma or events or whatever truths they might think, I don't know if I believe that images can change, you know, the direction that things are going. I'd like to think they could, but like I said earlier, I'm a cynic. So I don't know if they have the ability to do so anymore because I think society's attention shifts and flitters so quickly now that maybe our attention can't stay focused long enough to have something like an image change our mind. And then to finish up, I wanted to ask you the question that I ask everybody at the end of the show, and that's what matters more to you, the process of making the work or the final image itself? Oh, the process of making, absolutely, 100%. Thank you so much, Ada. Honestly, it was just so much fun talking to you. Oh my gosh, thanks so much for having me. It's like, you know, it's kind of fun staying on my toes and thinking about how I'm going to answer these things because it actually makes me realize a lot about myself and what I am working on as well so thanks for giving me food for thought thanks for listening to the messy truth you can find more information about today's guests in the show notes theme music is changed by judd greenstein from the album awake and design is by ruby white you can follow updates on the podcast on my instagram at jem fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com feel free to leave a review on apple podcasts